It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Retalkables. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means. Today, rewatching, reliving the 2010 Rose Bowl between Ohio State and Oregon. That's the one at the end of the 2009 season. Jim Trestle versus Chip Kelly. And we are doing this, of course, because this weekend was supposed to be Ohio State visiting Oregon in week two of the regular season. And that, of course, is not happening. But Ohio State and Oregon do kind of have an interesting little postseason history. This game on January 1st, 2010, was the first time that Ohio State and Oregon had played since 1987. And they played in this game. Then, of course, they played in the national championship game in the first college football playoff five years later. So now here we are five years later from that. It was time for Ohio State, Oregon again Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means. We're going to relive this because it's not happening. But Nathan, I-, I have seen people point this out. You know, there's a pandemic, but also the wildfires on the West Coast yeah. and in Oregon <laughs> probably also would have prevented this game from happening on this Saturday, even if there was no such thing as COVID-19. Yeah, so I wrote a piece actually for the site on Friday morning and just talked to a couple of former Ohio State players about what is it like, you know, is it a big deal when you get to play these non-conference road games, and especially in these that are like big matchups too, if, if they can be. Not all of them are, but, but some of them would be. And this one would have been. This would have been two top ten teams. So I just kind of wrote, it was sort of a, a, a nostalgic-ish piece. And in what, what, do, what looking into what athletes feel like they get out of those games. And I think you're right. I think it probably uh, was a completely moot point, not just because of coronavirus, but because even if none of all of that had happened, I don't know if this game would have been played this weekend. So I do think I, I love the, the non-conference matchups. Obviously, I think all Ohio State fans do. I've been lucky. I've gone to some cool places. I've actually never been to the state of Oregon, so I was looking forward to this one. But I've been to the University of Washington for, for a game, to Austin, Texas, um, to USC on the road, to Miami on the road, to Virginia Tech on the road. This would have been one of the best ones, I think, in a while. Because I just think I, I at times get tired of – the Pac-12 Big Ten rivalry, and when it feels like, man, why can't the Big Ten ever play the SEC, which is why the Bama series coming up is going to be so awesome. It's like, I get it. You have a a traditional rivalry with the Pac-12, but Oregon's good, right? Like, they played – when Ohio State had the series with Cal, I was kind of like, but Oregon, like, is interesting and fun, and they started to get really interesting and really fun, like – 
this season that we're about to do, this is the first year of Chip Kelly as a head coach, Chip Kelly, Ryan Day's mentor, and we'll get into that a little bit later. The story that, of course, you know, Ryan Day, there's a world where Ryan Day would have been on Chip Kelly's staff for this game. But we like to relive, I like to set this up a little bit. Again, this is Buckeye Retalkables, our rewatch version. We did Ohio State, Virginia Tech, the opener in 2015 as our very first one of these. This is the second one of these. Stephen Means, do you remember watching this game, absorbing this game, while a fourth grader in Columbus Elementary Schools, or however old you were in 2010? All right, well, I was a sophomore in high school, and yes, I do remember watching this game. But first of all, uh, the Big Ten Network's actually going to be you know, playing this game tomorrow, tomorrow night at 7 p.m. So, so this is Saturday. Let's not say today and tomorrow. Yeah, tonight. I'm sorry. Saturday tonight, night. Yeah, Saturday night, the Big Ten Network is going to be replaying this game. So what you guys should do is listen to this podcast as you watch the game. That's for you guys who are still social distancing. That's what you can do. But, yes, I do remember um, I actually made a bet with my science teacher about who would win this game. And if I chose Ohio State, he chose Oregon. Um, and if Ohio State won, I got an A for the entire quarter, which was great for me because I always forgot to do homework in science class, um, and they won, so I ended up with an A. So, yes, that's the positive that came out of this for me. That's an amusing story from your youth. I think your science teacher should be fired. If that, <laughs> that's like, why is America behind China and Japan and, and Sweden and Germany? And it's like, because we're giving A's in science over a football game? Yeah. Like, I'll be completely honest. Like, I get it. Like, I don't find that even 1% amusing. I think that's a freaking disgrace. And I want to track down your teacher and find them. Because you could have been a scientist. Instead, you're some kind of slappy sports oh, writer oh. hanging out with a couple of ding-dongs like us because you put value in football over science. And a teacher encouraged that. Well, it sounds, like, it sounds like he couldn't have been a scientist, but it also sounds like maybe he couldn't have been a high school graduate if this guy hadn't stepped in and pushed him across the oh, goal line. I would have gotten a B. It's not like I had an F in the class. And there was only one quarter. It wasn't the, the whole year. It was just that one quarter. So we can, we can couch this as, I know our first category is always who owned the game. Maybe we should change this to who got Steven an A yep. um, as we examine this game. So, of course, we know. Uh, this, now we're going back a little bit. We're going to keep going back. Further, I mean, I, I'm interested to get to some of these games on Buckeye Retalkables where it's games that I didn't cover, right? I think that's going to be fun. Do some John Cooper games, right? I'd love to find a Woody game that's on YouTube that we can really do, and like we'll all discover it together. I, of course, did cover this game because I'm old, um, and it was a great trip. Ohio State had not been to the Rose Bowl, I think, since 97. Like, Jim Trestle was really excited to get to go there. The way, you know, this is, again, it's this was particularly at a time in the transition of college football where the Rose bowl still does, but still, you know, 10 years ago meant even more to big 10 teams, but like Ohio state kept like qualifying for the Rose bowl, but then they got in the national championship game instead, you know, it's like stuff like that kept happening. Even in 2005, that was the first time I covered the Rose bowl because I did cover that Texas USC Rose bowl. But like that was the year that was before they had a separate national championship game. So the Rose bowl was the championship game. So Ohio State, which won the Big Ten, like didn't get to go to the Rose Bowl. There were a lot of weird things that Ohio State was awesome, but hadn't gotten to Pasadena, and this got them to Pasadena. Nathan, is there any way you watch this? 
I, I may have. I, I don't remember it. Like it's it's you, you watch a lot of games when you're in this profession, whether it's the ones you're uh, covering or just the ones you actually watch more that you're covering than the ones that are just kind of happening um, that, that you'd be just kind of casually watching. So I, I think it's it's very probable I watched it just being a, a Big Ten uh, person my whole life and, and following it. But I, I, I don't remember specific details of this game. So I don't know, like, I don't think you can play the spoiler on a game that's a decade old, right? So I, I sort of debate with this. It's like, well, should we give the score at the beginning or should we let people listen along and find out who won? Who won? Ohio State won. So this was a big deal because Ohio State was coming off three consecutive major bowl losses. The first year I covered Ohio State was 2005. They beat Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl. Then they lose the national championship game to Florida, lose the national championship game to LSU, and lose a heartbreaker to Texas in the Fiesta Bowl. And this was kind of a transition year because 2008, that last year, that was the last year of all those guys who were so key in the back-to-back national title games. But James Laurinaitis and Malcolm Jenkins and Brian Robisky and Alex Boone and Marcus Freeman and guys like that, they were gone. This was the year, this was Terrell Pryor's sophomore year. This was the year that that brew crew, that 2008 recruiting class really took over. And it was also the year they had the devastating Purdue loss out of nowhere in the middle of the year. And I did a story previewing this game. USC and Purdue were the two common opponents for Ohio State and Oregon that year. Ohio State had played USC. That was their non-conference game that year. It was the second game of a back-to-back. They had gone to USC in 08 and gotten blown out. Then USC came to Ohio Stadium in 2009 and won a really tight, low-scoring game with Matt Barkley, Barkley at the quarterback. And then randomly, Purdue played Oregon for some reason. And Ohio State lost both crossover games. Those were their only two losses coming in because they got killed. Well, they didn't get killed. They lost to USC, and then they got upset by Purdue. So I talked to some Purdue guys about, like, oh, what's, how's this game going to go? How's this game going to play out? Um, but it was a really big deal. And winning this was a big deal because it's hard to wrap your head around but there was a, this was a weird time in Ohio State football where it was like, you know, losing big-time bowl games was like a really big-time problem. It was like the number one problem with the program. They could get there, and then they couldn't get over the top. And to get over the top in this one was a huge deal for Ohio State. And then the other side of this is, Stephen and Nathan, I mean, it's, it's just amazing to me to think about this again. And I have a quote that I want to read. But Nathan, man, people thought Chip – Kelly's offense came from Mars and you watch it now and it's like, Oh yeah, it's just offense. Yeah. That's what everybody runs. Like I've, I've seen like a bunch of versions of this, including at Ohio state, you know, that that's what it became the norm. And that's why, so that's, what's interesting when you get the perspective of like the three of us, because you have that perspective of watching all that kind of unfold the way you did firsthand. I wasn't covering college football at that time. I was, I was just sort of watching it again, more casually. And I don't think I had that same grasp as in now I look back on it and that doesn't really resonate the same way. I mean, you, you hear about like, Oh, they're going to play real up tempo and all that. And like, it, it doesn't really come across to you as like something crazy is happening out there on the field. You just look at it and you're like, yeah, that's, that's how people play football now, but it's a credit to him and kind of the trendsetter that he was that um, a lot of people went the copycat route because of the success he had with that. I do. So the story of this is that, again, I think a lot of people listening to this know this. Ryan Day and Chip Kelly went to the same high school in Manchester, New Hampshire. And again, I like to throw in that my dad also grew up in Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, Chip Kelly was then the offensive coordinator at New Hampshire, and, and he recruited Ryan Day to come be the quarterback there. And so that's, that's how their relationship began. And so they're super tight. 
Like that's Chip Kelly is Ryan Day's guy. And Ryan Day, in, in telling the story of his career, he had a chance to go be with Chip Kelly in Oregon. And he took the job and then he turned down the job. He took it and then like couldn't go. I think he was at like a birthday party or something or a family gathering. He was like, I can't, I can't do this. And so he ended up spending most of his career on the East Coast, Boston College, Temple, schools like that. Before he got into the NFL with Chip Kelly, he finally wound up on Chip Kelly's staff, first with the Philadelphia Eagles, then followed him to San Francisco. They all get fired after one year in San Francisco and Ryan Day gets hired in Columbus and the rest is history. But Ryan Day could have been on this staff and instead he's not. And it's funny, there's a reference that's made later in the game by Brent Musburger to 45 of Chip Kelly's friends from New Hampshire coming out to the game. They call them like themselves the New Hampshire Ducks and that Chip Kelly told them like, I can hang out with you for half an hour like a couple days before the game, you get half an hour and that's it. And I thought to myself, I wonder if Ryan Day was one of those 45 guys. Do you think he was? I mean, like Ryan Day's a coach by then, but he's also like Chip Kelly's friend. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Where was he in his coaching tree in, or his coaching uh, career in 2009, 2010? Do you think he was busy on the Rose Bowl day? I don't know. Yeah, probably not, but. Well, somebody, somebody keep talking while I look that up. Didn't you? Did you <laughs> think that? Did you think that to yourself? He was when they was, said that. Was Ryan Day one of the friends? Uh, I don't um, know. To me, to me, it was more. It sounded more like. Um, I mean, I, I guess I don't know the, the full extent of the relationship because to me, when I first heard it, I just thought of like you know, um, old like drinking buddies or whatever from back yeah. home. But Ryan Day may have very well been one of those too. I don't know. For the record, he was at Boston College as a wide receiver coach at the time. And Boston College went eight and five that year and lost in the Emerald Bowl. And they, that the Emerald Bowl is now called the Red Box Bowl. So that Emerald Bowl was played on December 26th. And Ryan Day would have been done with the season and had plenty of time to like go see his buddy in the Rose Bowl on January Could just 1st. hung out on the West Coast and waited for the game, yeah. Just to stay and recruit. It's like, ah, oh, I'm just going to stay out here and recruit for a little bit and then go see Chip. <laughs> I don't know. Now we've got to call Ryan Day and ask him. Okay. So this is alien dropped from the sky football, and I have this very vivid memory still of being in the downtown L.A. hotel where all the, all the interviews were. I can remember that setup. I have a terrible memory, but I, like that setup for one reason is stuck in my head. And coming out, and John Gruden was doing the game for ESPN Radio, and he was out there in the sort of in the lobby, and we wound up with just a mob of people around John Gruden talking to him about Chip Kelly. And I'm debating whether I should do my John Gruden impersonation as I read the quotes. Do you guys want me to do a John Gruden impersonation as I read John Gruden quotes or just talk like a normal person? Of course. I think you have to do the impersonation when you're talking about John Gruden. Now I got to work it out. It's a totally different, it's a totally different way of attacking a totally different philosophical offensive style than I've ever seen. He said that John Gruden or Jerry. <laughs> Who's that? no, <laughs> Uh, that was a little too Minnesota. E, I'm John. E, I'm John Gruden. Wait, wait, let me work it out. Let me work it out. I'm trying to do Frank Caliendo's John Gruden. The strange thing, just no, I lost it. The strange thing about Oregon is they don't huddle. Like back then, it's like John Gruden. The idea that Oregon didn't huddle, John Gruden was like, "What is this? Have you seen a huddle at Ohio State in the last five years?" It's just, it's amazing to me what what the world was like back then. The strange thing about Oregon is they don't huddle. 
I don't know where the pitch guy, I don't know where the pitch guy is coming from. One time he came from under the AstroTurf and showed up. One time there's an unbalanced line and you don't know what uniform they're going to wear either. I'm enamored with it. John Gruden literally, his mind was literally blown. Steven, you're like nodding your head. Like it's ridiculous. It's not yeah. 50 years ago. No. The spread offense 10 years ago and the fact that like Oregon changed uniforms from game to game, John Gruden could not believe it. Oregon was probably the perfect school to do all this because they could also wear 75 million different uniform combinations. But yeah, I, I mean, Urban Meyer was kind of running this red offense, but it was more power run stuff than it was, you know, literally spreading guys out and throwing screen passes all over the place and having weird plays and not huddling. Uh, Urban Meyer may have started it, but Chip Kelly definitely took it to a different level that you didn't think he was going to go to. Well, it's just different versions of it, right? I mean, Rich yeah. Rodriguez was really influential in this. Urban was really influential. Chip Kelly had his version of it. And we saw it even expand today. There are kind of two versions of, of this kind of spread offense. But the thing that was in common is neither of these spreads, the Urban spread and the Chip Kelly spread, they're not based on throwing it. I mean, like the run and shoot kind of spread where you're going to throw it 60 times a game. Chip wants to run out of this. Urban wants to run out of this. And like you said, Stephen, Urban's more of a kind of a power thing with like a, a jack, a sledgehammer quarterback like Tim Tebow. And Urban Meyer, I mean, Chip Kelly is just getting little guys running sideways. And so, I mean, it's not, it's brilliant. And, and, and I, Nathan, I think I've talked about this before. Um, early in my career, right when I got out of college, a couple years after actually, I was working in Indiana when Joe Tiller took over at Purdue. And, and I think this is, this is like the Purdue dream. If they would have been just – if Nike's headquarters were in West Lafayette instead of in Eugene, Oregon, right? Like maybe Purdue's Oregon because it's like you get some smaller guys who are maybe a little undersized to get recruited by USC and Ohio State. You get them in space. You get creative. You get a little funky, and you like establish a new way of doing things. And I think what Oregon did is just they went – kind of next level on what Joe Tiller had done in a similar way at Purdue a decade earlier. No, I mean, it's, it's when you're ever the, whenever you can be the first person to go out there and do something and it, it, you can be the innovator and you can force the other people to catch up to you. I mean, that's how Purdue had the success they had under Joe Tiller. It wasn't necessarily that, I mean, they had some good players too. I mean, obviously Drew, Drew Brees helped. They had some other good guys come through there, but I mean, to when you can be the person that comes in and sort of forces the rest of the big 10, or forces the rest of your conference to kind of change to the way you want to play. I think that's where that's how a place like Purdue and how a place even like Oregon, even with their resources at that time, that was how I think they were going to have to be transcendent and have this kind of success that they did. They could have been just with their resources, with their, you know, their usual stuff. They could have been a, a good Pac-12 school, but to become a national power, they needed something like this to kind of be their identity and, and like I said, just kind of turn that conference on its ear a little bit, force everybody else to have to catch up to what you're doing. Like they were fine. They were, they were like, okay, but chip chip is what took them next level. He had been, he was the offensive coordinator for two years before he took over as the head coach. So they do this, this chips first year as a head coach, they go to the Rose bowl. The next year they're in the national title game. And the year after that, they're back in the Rose bowl and they win it. So, I mean, it is, it is unbelievable. Chip Kelly in four years, Oregon, his four years, no. Yeah. Four years as head coach. They lose this game to Ohio State. They fall to 11th. They finish third, fourth, second in the nation his four years. He's a stinking genius. I wanted him to be the Browns coach when he got hired by the Eagles. I thought it would translate. And it's unfortunate because Chip Kelly, like a lot of guys with big egos, ruined his career because he didn't stuck, 
stick to what he knew best. He's an offensive genius. He's an innovator. And he, he ended up wanting personnel power in the NFL. And he was an awful GM. Terrible. And he tanked himself as a GM. And then it's like, there's some debate, I think, like, does that, how does that offense really translate? But now we see now, well, there's all kinds of stuff, like this kind of thing that's happening in the NFL. He might have been a little ahead of his time, but I think if he would have stuck to coaching, he, he would have been fine. Because I think, I, I think you see it in this game. So Ohio State, the big other storyline going into this game was like, how was, I mean, it's not other storyline, it's the continued storyline. How do you slow this down? And I think in conclusion, what we figure out a little bit through the course of this game is preparing for Oregon, how unusual they were, preparing for them in a week. Back then was almost like preparing for Navy and the triple option. You've got to just like change everything you do. When you have a month, five or six weeks, however long they had, you can do it, especially when you've got some good players, right? So Ohio State winds up winning this game. 26 17 and since it is a rewatch and we can look back with 2020 hindsight i'm only going to bring up things like this when it makes me look good ohio state won 26 17 my prediction for this game in the plain dealer was 28 20 ohio state everybody on the pregame show jesse palmer the bachelor lee corso desmond howard all picked oregon right before the game. Chris Fowler kind of said, ah, I think Ohio State might do it. But there were a lot of people picking Oregon in this game. Number seven, Oregon. Number eight, Ohio State. My little synopsis was for the first time in four bowl games, Ohio State has a talent edge and talent wins. And I do think, I, w- I don't think, I know, I was right. I mean, like, you, you look, this was, this was a little smoke and mirrors from Oregon. And this Ohio State team is not as talented as Ohio State teams that we see now on a regular basis since Urban, Urban Meyer took it to the next level of recruiting. But you, when you go like through these rosters and you hear the names that are playing in this game, I mean, it's not like Oregon is filled with a bunch of NFL stars. And it's not like Ohio State really is either. But I think Ohio State had the better team. They played the better game. And they won. So we'll get to our categories. And we kick off with who owned this game. Nathan, as you watch this, as you absorb this Rose Bowl, who did you think owned this game? I mean, I think it might just be too lazy of an answer, but I mean, what Terrell Parr meant to this team. And I think also when you attach the larger meaning for in his career, they from reading and, and, and just what they talked about during the broadcast, because again, I wasn't as present at the time, but like it, it seemed like a substantial moment for him which then made it a substantial moment for the program in the long term, just for, for kind of sealing what his identity was. That's why I picked him. Steven, do you agree with that? Do you have somebody else? No, I have somebody else. I actually have two guys. One for just a shout out, Kenny Rowe from Oregon. He had a, a Rose Bowl record, three sacks in the game. I don't know if that still stands right now, but as of then, that was a record. So I think you have to acknowledge that, which is will play into something I'm going to talk about later. But the, I said Devere Posey, I mean, eight catches, 101 yards and a touchdown. And, there were a lot of – Terrell Pryor had a great statistical game, yes. But when you watch the game, there was a lot of bad throws. Um, he had the one interception. He had one throw that he threw behind a receiver that should have been a touchdown, but instead they had to settle for a field goal on that play. And there were a lot of times where it was, if I don't get the ball to Devere Posey or we don't call a screen play for um, Sonsenbacher, we're probably not going to complete a pass. So I'm um, Devere Posey. So, so I'll, I'll – I'll say who I had as my who owned the game in a minute, but I think this is the good, this is a good time as any to get into Terrell Pryor, right? Terrell Pryor year two as a starter, as they pointed out on the broadcast, each of the three previous games, 
leading into this, he'd only thrown 17 passes in each of those three games. He winds up going 23 of 37 for 266, two touchdowns and an interception. Also does some things on the ground, 20, 20 carries for 72 yards. And it was a reminder to me of what the offense so often back then was. And I, and, and I lived it. I covered every snap of it. Nathan, I'm a little – do you agree with this? It felt like the offense – and this is year two. He, he has one more year as a starter. But it didn't change all that much. That literally sometimes the play call was, Terrell, take the snap, wait for the rush to come, and then run. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's literally the play. It definitely felt like that. It was it was uh, a um, expansion of what we saw last week, really, with Cardell Jones at times. When we talked about an offense that didn't really necessarily fit him all the time, one that was designed for JT Barrett, and he was kind of forced into it. Well, this did seem to be an offense that was designed for Terrell Pryor and what his talents were, and a lot of times that talent was just go be Terrell Pryor. They beat Iowa this in this season on that. Terrell Pryor just going bonkers. Steven, you were vigorously nodding your head. That's how you would describe this offense as well? Yeah, um, and I, I could, it got to the point where I couldn't tell if the line was just getting abused the entire game or, if, like, to your point, that was the offense. And I actually looked up, you know, th- this was only the fourth time in Terrell Pryor's entire career that he had ever thrown at least 30 passes. While when you look at Dwayne Haskins, obviously he only had, you know, twice two games – two games where he had under 30 passes and, you know, Justin Fields started to get up the passes and JT Barrett had 18 times where he threw it at least 30 times. It was basically kind of similar to what Braxton Miller had to deal with as a true freshman where it was like, all right, we have a play to run, but if it doesn't work, take off, which is what you see a lot of times at Pop Warner football. And so this is why one of the reasons why I picked him as being the one that owns a game is because when you're coming in and you've had the losing streak in big games, had the losing streak in bowl games, he's coming in with some injury concerns to this game. And the whole thing is kind of put on his shoulders against this kind of emerging, as, as Doug said, the alien offense that's coming in. And you're, he is the one that has to lead Ohio State through this. And I thought because you do that, that's you get to own it. That we, we, so we give quarterbacks too much credit and too much um, criticism at times. And he, he gets the extra credit for that to me. He did play with a partially torn PCL ligament in his leg, which he told us a little a couple days before the game. Um, they note in the broadcast he seems to hobble almost a little bit right on the very first run. Um, it just was odd again to watch, which is why some of this is fun. They just don't throw they, they don't throw almost anything in rhythm. There, a couple quick slants, but nothing down the field more than ten yards. That's at all a route in rhythm. Everything is get it out of your hands immediately for like a bubble screen or a three-step drop and get rid of it or a scramble. There's like, you know, as Steven is, you know, you know, there's a couple, there's a, there's a sideline pass. He threw a good route in the end zone for the last touchdown to Posey. Yeah. And, and Steven, you noted that Posey, you know, that was pretty big. Um, Posey had a really good game. And that was in rhythm. That was a really good throw and a really good catch. But it wasn't like com- to compare it to what Dwayne Haskins did or what Justin Fields did. I mean, it just is not even – it's not even in the same ballpark. And I'm not – I mean, that's just the way it is. It's not a revelation to anybody. We know what Terrell Pryor is. He's tremendous. At what he does, he's tremendous. But it's just – it's just not even close to what the Ohio State offense looks like today. And that's why, I mean – just to move it, he was my JT Bear underappreciated guy, and not him, just his legs. 
because I just want to point out the very first snap of the game, Bryant Browning got destroyed by the defensive tackle. And he was basically standing next to Terrell Pryor before Terrell Pryor got a chance to even draw back and see what his options were. So I understand that he had great statistics, but I think just his legs alone, you didn't necessarily have to call a lot of QB designed runs because quite frankly, the rusher was going to get back there anyway, and he was going to take off and he was going to get 10 to 12 rushes off of that. He, I mean, that's a, it's hard to underappreciate Terrell Pryor. I mean, he, he's a very rare player. He was the number one overall recruit in the country. Yeah. The craziest recruitment I've ever covered or ever will cover. Again, people know the story of him having a press conference on National Signing Day to announce that he's not signing. I mean, like I was in Pittsburgh <laughs> in a gym with like Pete Thamel and reporters from all over the country. The New York Times is there. And he had a press conference to announce, I'm not signing. And we were like, what? And then I was covering, I remember I was covering I the NCAA that. basketball tournament in Washington, D.C. back when I just used to cover the tournament no matter what. And then it's like he signed then. And then I was in like the press room at a basketball game talking to Terrell Pryor and Jim Tressel on a conference call because it took like however many weeks later. So it was, it was bonkers. I, 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 I was driving. I've told the story. I've, I was like driving through town. I had gotten um, a tip from somebody that there was this guy this older guy in town who picked up Terrell Pryor after school every day and drove him home. And it was like a guy like in a nice car. And so like I, I had gone, I went and watched Terrell Pryor play at a high school game on the way to covering an Ohio state Penn state game. And I watched him on a Friday night and that game looked like this Rose bowl game looked where it's like snap the ball to the really tall guy who can run. And then just, he just goes crazy. And it's like, he did that in a kind of a low level high. He didn't play for a great high school team. He did that like at low-level Pennsylvania high school football, and he also did it in the Rose Bowl because he was so exceptional. But then on the way back, I drove through his town. I drove past his high school as it was letting out. Terrell Pryor comes out, gets in a car, the car that I think, okay, this is the guy. I sort of like follow this car through town because I kind of want to see where it's going. But I don't really want to follow them. I'm just kind of curious about what's up. I don't mean to stalk them. Because I, I didn't know what the relationship was between Terrell Pryor and this guy, but I had been told some things. So I drive, I, I pull over on the side of the road because I'm like, they go out in the country and I'm like, they are going to know that I'm following them. What am I doing? This is insane. I pull over, I wait, I lose them. Then I go back and, and try to find them. And I'm sitting at a stop sign and the car comes across my path from the other direction and I'm sitting there at the stop sign and Terrell Pryor's in the passenger seat and just, just like looks out the window at me <laughs> as the people drive by. And I was like, oh, my God, I've been made. And the guy who was driving Terrell Pryor around is Ted Sarniak, who ended up in the midst of the entire tattoo gate issue that Ted Sarniak was sort of like Terrell Pryor's benefactor from that small town. He was the guy that Jim Tressel in Ohio State had a great relationship with in their recruitment of Terrell Pryor. I was told all along the way that some of the other schools recruiting Terrell Pryor were trying to go through the high school coach and Ohio State was smart and they knew who the decision maker was, which is not illegal. It's just smart recruiting. And they developed a relationship with Ted Sarniak and Ted Sarniak was, was very important to Terrell Pryor. And I did not know at that time that it was going to lead to anything else. But then famously, and Ted Sarniak has now passed away, but famously, that when the name Ted Sarniak came up, then into the investigation of when Jim Tressel found out some things about what maybe was going on with Ohio State players selling some of their merchandise, Jim Tressel didn't tell anybody else, but he reached out to Ted Sarniak. And it's like, yeah, 
Ted Sarniak. He's been involved from the get-go. So that's my tale of Terrell Pryor, but that's, that's who this guy is. So like it was bonkers. So I would push back against Terrell Pryor ever being in any category that begins with like underappreciated because he was a unicorn. He was like the Giannis of Ohio State football. But I get what you're saying, Stephen, because it was such a get-out-of-jail-free card. You didn't really have to have much of a plan, and he could make things up on the go in a very different way than Braxton Miller, but often the result was the same, which is like, whew, we didn't really have a plan on that third down, but way to convert it. And it's kind of just amazing to watch when you think you're talking about two top 10 teams in the Rose Bowl, and that's what the offense was like a lot of the time. And I'm thinking, as a, a part of the reason is, I'm just thinking, look at how Ohio State is developing quarterbacks now. I mean, even JT Baird showed huge improvement from what he was his first two years to when Ryan Day finally got his hands on him. Imagine if, not even saying if Ryan Day was the guy, but just if they had a guy who was actually good at developing quarterbacks when Terrell Pryor was around, what things could have been for Terrell Pryor if it wasn't just, here, Terrell, if everything breaks down, beat Terrell Pryor. And we know, of course, at this time, Nick Siciliano, the Ohio State quarterbacks coach, Joe Daniels, who was a great, successful quarterbacks coach, got sick. Uh, they promoted mm-hmm. Nick Siciliano, who was just had never been a quarter, had never been a full-time coach before, was overmatched, and Terrell Pryor didn't get the kind of coaching he should have gotten during his career at Ohio State. Jim Tressel was a quarterbacks coach; he was hands-on with that. But I, I, I've learned enough over time. Um, the guy in that room, the guy in that room, you can't pretend that your head coach is your quarterback's coach because he's got too much else to do. And if you think this is sounding like a, something that I've been railing about in modern day Ohio State football, this is part of why. Because I watched this for a couple of years with a talent like Terrell Pryor, who I felt like didn't have a guy in his room every day who was developing him and coaching him hard. Nick Siciliano was a good guy. They had a good relationship. He didn't, he wasn't able to coach him hard and to the level that would have allowed Terrell Pryor, I think, to raise his game a little bit, maybe get past what this was, which is like Terrell save us. Um, so how bad did he need? Tell us, Doug, a wise one as yeah. you, the one who was there, how bad did he need this at his juncture, this juncture of his career? Because you're it talking was, about, the, yeah, I mean, it just seemed like he needed to turn a corner right after coming in as lauded as he was and how much, how high the expectations were, how high the expectations always are for Ohio state. What happens if they don't end up winning this game? How does that affect things? Um, They were still, so listen, they, they were really good this year. And then the Purdue loss kind of came out of nowhere. And we've covered that a million different times, a million different ways, but that was more um, overconfidence, a young team, I think not having enough leadership and getting a little full of itself, but he was coming along. Right. But I do think that, I would say the program needed it more than Terrell Pryor needed it because that bowl thing was like, was it hanging around their neck and they couldn't shake it. You had to go win a big bowl game on a big stage to shake it. And they did with this game. But when I was reading what I wrote off this game, what everybody wrote, they just did let him loose a little bit more. Right. And we can look back now and you watch his throwing motion. And again, you compare it to what we're used to with Dwayne Haskins and Justin Fields and it doesn't compare, but back at that time, after having three straight games of throwing 17 passes, you didn't know. You didn't know if he was ever going to really be a thrower. So to come out and do this, Nathan, to your point, it was like there's a lot of effusive praise for this was Terrell Pryor's arrival. And then going into his junior year, there's a Heisman campaign that's based on this. 
look what he did in the Rose Bowl. As we've seen a million times before, we always say bowl season is the first game of your Heisman campaign. That started for Terrell Pryor because of what he did in this game. So yes, for what he was and for people feeling that maybe he was a run-only kind of quarterback, to throw it, even this that wasn't perfect in hindsight, people really, it did open their eyes to, yeah, this guy maybe can do some more things than we thought. Cam Hayward is my guy who I thought owned the game. And the reason I think that is because, again, I know we talked a lot about the Ohio State defensive line coming into this game, how important it was. And I think the most important number in this game is the 17 that Ohio State limited Oregon to. If you would have said before the game, will 26 be enough for Ohio State to win? I don't think most people would have said yes, even though I predicted 28-20 so brilliantly. That Cam Hayward had a sack early that made an impact. And I just felt like as you watched, you could see Cam Hayward just like heaving himself into the offensive line, play after play after play, and not allowing himself to be worn down by pace and not getting tired at the end. And Doug Worthington and Thaddeus Gibson and a bunch of other defensive linemen contributed to this as well. But I thought the Ohio State defensive line, you wondered if they would hold up, they held up. And then when you look, Cam Hayward is the best player in this game and it's not even a question. He's the only player in this game who went on to be a first-round pick in the NFL. Now, that's not the only thing we're talking about when we're talking about a college football game. This guy just signed another contract. This guy has been an all-pro, all pro, pro bowl kind of player in the NFL for a decade. This guy is the best, like, strong side defensive end that I've ever seen at Ohio State. Ohio State has all these sort of pass rush specialists at ends. We know who we're talking about. The best in the country. But Hayward's bigger. He's more of a sturdy run defender while he also gets after the passer. He really can play tackle or end. He's a different kind of player than Chase Young or the Bosa brothers or anybody like that. But man, is he a good football player. And I just thought like, even though I think he had four, he only had four tackles and he had that one sack, I think was in the first series. But I feel like I felt his presence just sort of like blowing things up, filling holes, not making it easy, and like against an up-tempo offense that people weren't accustomed to, holding up all game. And then he came back the next year. He could have gone pro after this. He didn't. But then he goes on, right? Is that right? I just looked at the draft thing. I don't want to make sure I get that right. He goes on and then just has right. this amazing, I mean, awesome. He's just awesome. He's just an awesome player. And, he's and someone I that underappreciated that. definitely applies to. Yeah, I mean, he's just really mm -hmm. good. I mean, he's just – he's so good. Again, the only first-rounder out of this game. So, I just thought the defensive line led by Cam Hayward. That, to me, is who owned this game. All right, so underappreciated players. Steven, you said Terrell for this, right? Mm -hmm. Nathan, who'd you say? The JT Barrett underappreciated player of the game. I, so, I had picked the defensive front, and I, I was going to make Hayward the exception to that because I think he obviously stood out in an obvious way in his – his accolades are what they are. So, but it's the rest of those guys, you know, Doug Worthington, you mentioned him before he had the big interception deflection in this game that was, was critical. Um, so all those guys I thought were doing a pretty good job other than one exception that we'll come to later. I thought they were doing a pretty good job of bottling up um, the, uh, Oregon up front. And then also I threw in Brandon Sane as another guy who I thought um, deserves some mention there just because he seemed like a guy who made big plays. He's not like someone who comes late to Ohio state football. Like that's not a name that I would necessarily know right that's not a that's not a household name even from someone who reads a lot about Ohio State football a decade removed from this game but the, he was a, a palpable impact in this game 
Brandon Sane's my guy too, for underappreciated. I love Brandon Sane. And it was always Sane and Heron together, in kind of that dual backfield role. And it was much different. This was not like Mike Weber, J.K. Dobbins. They, they kind of were always together. And neither of them was particularly like Dan Heron in the end. Dan Heron played, had played for several years in the NFL, and I think it was a fourth-round pick. And his last year, he was kind of the guy. But I really liked it when it was Heron and Sane together. Sane is such an interesting package of skills to me. You saw him as a pass catcher in this game. He had two really nice catches. He had the touchdown, the tiptoe down the sideline, 14 rushes for 45 yards, two catches for 59 on the TD. In a, in a more creative offense, maybe in a different era, I think Brandon saying if he comes through now, right, or Brandon saying if he has Chip Kelly as his play caller instead of Jim Trestle, I think, I think Brandon Sane maybe could have been an NFL player because he's a lot almost like a Paris Campbell kind of guy to me that he's super fast, but he's also big. He's not scrawny. He's thick. He's strong, but he's got speed. I remember one time, and I was going to say, I think I tweeted it, but I think it was before Twitter. He had, a, he had like a huge run maybe in the opener one year. And I think I might have said out loud, like Brandon Sane just started his Heisman run or whatever. And I think Adam Rittenberg from ESPN was like, okay, it's one game. And it's like Brandon Sane ran for like 350 yards that year. It's, it sticks in my mind. It is literally the most, the homerist thing I've ever said. That I said that like Brandon Sane had started his Heisman campaign. It's like he, he never had 12 carries a game for Ohio State. But I just, he's such an interesting player. And I love that you included him, Nathan. I think he'd been like, go ahead. I was going to say, couldn't he have been like a prototypical, um, Urban Meyer H back kind of deal yeah. too. Like, I mean, I think he would have fit really well in that role. Yeah, I agree. I think I think what's interesting that you guys named you know, Brandon saying, and I'm going to include Dan Heron in this just to make the point. When they try, when you look at the fact that Brandon saying averaged 3.2 yards per carry and Dan Heron averaged three yards per carry, I mean, <laughs> that just shows you where the offense was. That you that we can say that I mean they had a quality performance because. J.K. Dobbins called 4.2 yards per carry a failure of a season, and we agree with him that it was a terrible season. So it, it is to the point of where the offense was then. I'm, it's just, I'm just thinking about what those yards per carry would look like in 2019 with a better off – with a more you know, up-tempo style offense where you're not in the eye formation every third play. It is. It's hard to wrap your head around, man. Like statistically, just how it looks, yeah. it's hard to wrap your head around sometimes. All right. 3.2 was decent back then. Slob moment of the game, the offensive lineman or linemen, their best overall moment or an observation overall. Who is your slob of the game, Stephen? Okay, so I'm going to include fullbacks in this because they don't exist anymore. Um, yeah, well, at least in our, the world of college football. We they, don't they don't exist. They don't exist. Yeah, they don't exist. You're fine. Um, Zach Bourne had a block on the two-yard line. It's, I, think, uh, I think it was – Seven seven to nothing Ohio State's up and they're back on in the two yard in their own two yard line. He drove a guy ten yards down the field and the guy even tried to snatch his helmet off and they ended up getting a face mask out of it. So they got an extra few yards off for that. But he from the backfield come up and he drives a guy up and I think it's I think it's yes, Daniel Harum ends up getting a first down off of the play just because of what Zach Warren was able to do as a lead blocker. So I will say about Zach Boren that I had him as my um John Cooper, if he'll bite, he'll bite as a pup guy because he's a true freshman in this yeah. game. He was the number 786 recruit in the nation in the class of 2009. He was the second lowest of the 24 recruits in that Ohio State class. 
He's playing fullback as a true freshman. And then three years later in 2012, in Urban, in Urban Meyer's first year, you think about how different all that feels, right? 2009, Ohio State's still rolling. 2010, still Trestle at his peak. The end of 2010 is when it falls apart. 2011 is the Luke Fickle year, and, Luke, and Zach Bourne's there trying to hold it together. And then Zach Bourne in 2012 is a key leader on this team that goes undefeated. This 2009 class is a, a incredibly interesting transitional class because they get two years of Trestle, then Fickle, then the first year of Urban. John Simon, I think, is in there, some other guys. But Zach Boren, what he would become as a fullback, then Urban gets here, they don't have a fullback anymore. He turns into a middle linebacker for them because they don't have anybody else to play. But he is just a foundational guy for the Urban Meyer era, but here he is as a true freshman in the Rose Bowl, cracking dudes. He had a kickout block on a fourth and one play that I want to get into later. I mean, he just buries guys. When he is supposed to, to have a guy that he's going to deal with on a block, he gets them almost every time. He's a true freshman. So I think that I think it's great that we recognize Zach Bourne there. Who was your um, – what's the name of the category? The slob moment. Do you have an actual slob, slob moment? Well, I think it was the other member of the Bourne family on a different fourth down play, right? Late in the first half. Was that Justin Bourne? It's that actually been the blessed? same fourth down play. Same fourth Zach down, okay. got a kick out and Justin yeah. slid across and pulled. Yeah, and he, him going through there and blasting that out, I thought that was just a big moment of the game. Things were still tight, and Ohio State had a chance to, to score right there late in the first half, and if they don't convert that fourth and one, they don't. I thought that was kind of like the pro- prototypical slob moment where you put it on a, a big guy's back. He's got to go in there and clear that space, and they did it. And that, and I think I have this right. That's the famous Dave play that Ohio State fans know so well that it's just that kind of uh, the right side of the line blocks one way and you pull the backside guard and pull him and get him out in the hole and you have the fullback kick out like Zach did. And so Boren, Justin Boren, who's an all Big Ten player, um, came out and pulled perfectly and both Borens lit their dudes up and, and I think Brandon Sane carried it and they got that first down. So I, my slob of the game was Dave because of that Dave play that Ohio State fans came to know so well uh, in the Jim Trestle era. But again, just to note, a, a, a great Boren legacy started at Ohio State because Justin Boren transferred from Michigan. It was, one, it was a gigantic story. I remember when Tim May broke the story. What? This guy is going to transfer from Michigan to Ohio State. His dad, Mike, had played at Michigan. They wound up, they grew up in the Columbus suburbs, but they're a Michigan family. Justin Boren goes to play for Lloyd Carr. Lloyd Carr retires. This Rich Rodriguez guy comes in. Not Justin Boren's kind of dude. Justin Bourne is like, I'm out of here, and I'm looking for a Lloyd Carr kind of guy. Where can I find one? And he picks Jim Trestle. And the idea of a very good Michigan player transferring to Ohio State, just mind-blowing. And then it leads to Zach, up next, comes to Ohio State. Jacoby, up next, comes to Ohio State and winds up starting at center for the national champion. So Justin Bourne pulled and led the way on that play. He also led the way on three Borens. And that's why... If you live in the Columbus area, there's a dumpster in the alley behind your house or apartment with a big Buckeye stripe on it because the Boren family is, owns, a, owns a dumpster company. That's why. If not for that, those dumpsters would have blue, maize and blue on them. Think about that. 
if Justin Bourne hadn't transferred. Actually, I'm sure that wouldn't work. They would not. People would set those dumpsters on fire. <laughs> yeah. And actually, they would make it a meme then. The meme would be, look, it's a, it's a, it's a Michigan dumpster that's on fire. That would actually be kind of funny. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I, again, it's one of these things with the re- retalkables. It's interesting to me because, like, all this stuff is obvious to me. There, I'm sure there's some people who are listening to this who are like, yeah, Doug, we remember Justin Bourne transferred. But also, it was like 12 years ago. 11 years ago when he transferred, I think there might be some people who were listening to this who don't exactly know that. Nathan, did you know that before I said it? I think I had, it had come up in a conversation with you before, but I don't remember it, no. See, so I like it. I like that I'm the old guy. And then we have some people out there listening who are diehard Ohio State fans, but you know, they don't know what happened 10 years ago. So yeah, boring, important. The Malik Hooker, where did he come from award? It's for a guy who makes a play out of nowhere, makes a difference in the game for a moment, more of a kind of a flash. So who's a Steven? Your guy that the Malik Hooker, what? Just came from off the screen and made a play. Who's your guy? I didn't really have one for that because part of the Malik Hooker thing is he literally, we didn't really know who he was before that. The, the problem with this era was there's not a lot of underclassmen playing in a lot of these key positions. So it's not a lot of chances for a guy to come out of nowhere in a bowl game to make a play. Yeah, I, I kind of had the same problem. I know you mentioned Zach Bourne being a true freshman, but it, I, I tried to like read up and get some better um, familiarity with the roster. But I, it, it, I didn't see someone jump out obviously to me that was that fit that. But I bet you probably have some good perspective on that. So here's my thing. And again, we, you know, it's about making the categories work for you. So the the guys who flash sort of out of nowhere, I, I went with the kickers on this because the kicker thing was crazy. And I don't know, like, if you guys watching it noticed. They just had two kickers. Did you note that they just rotated kickers in the Rose Bowl? Yeah. <laughs> so Aaron Petrie is the kicker during the year, and he hurts his knee against New Mexico State. And they're like, oh, oh we need another kicker. So Devin Barkley, who's a former soccer player, who's like in his mid-20s, comes in to backup kicker, kicks the game-winning field goal against Iowa, and they go bonkers. One of the great celebrations in Ohio Stadium that I've ever covered. So now Aaron Petrie has all the bowl practice to recover, and he's back. And that week we were like, who's the kicker? And Jim Trestle was like, well, you know, we have two good kickers. And we're like, yes, we know you have two good kickers, but who's the kicker? Because the one guy is the starting kicker, but the other guy saved you against Iowa. So what Jim Trestle did, the thing that is like the where did he come from part of this award is like you look up and it's like, oh, it's a different kicker. So in this game, they used them both Aaron Petrie did the extra points. Barkley did the kickoffs. Barkley did the field goals under 40 yards and Petri did the field goals over 40 yards. So, and guess what? They were four for four. So Devin Barkley made field goals of 1930 and 38 and Petri made a field goal of 45. Who other than Jim Trestle would find a way to perfectly rotate place kickers in the Rose Bowl. So it's like, where did he come from? It's like, who's in the game? I don't know. Well, which guy's doing it? It didn't matter. The kickoffs were actually a little short. I did mention that in my post game when I was writing that. And I'm, we're going to get to that. But some of the returns that, that, that Oregon got were in part Aaron Petrie, who was still coming back. He didn't get real deep kickoffs. But I just thought that was fascinating. How many times, Nathan, Steven, how often in your life have you seen a team like literally rotate kickers in a game that matters? In a game that matters, no. I've seen some other teams that weren't sure which of their kickers was the one that they should be using, and they've used them both, but not quite to this extent. No, I did you, think. I think. Go, go ahead. ahead. I'd say I also thought one of my favorite anecdotes from the broadcast was. The, but then they say that um, 
it was his third game at the Rose Bowl, but the other two were when he was playing for M- MLS team. Oh yeah, yeah, he's an MLS player. Yeah, yeah. So for Devin Barkley was yeah. Right. So anyway, that's weird. Let's take a break. We got more categories to hit. Style check. Meme it. The Maurice Claret game saving moment. Does this look like a championship team? Jim Trestle punt or not to punt moment. The questionable coaching decision. The Kenny Guyton next man up award. Uh, all kinds of stuff yet to come. We got to pick up the pace a little bit because we're having too much fun. We'll be right back. It's the Rose Bowl from January 1st, 2010, Ohio State versus Oregon on Buckeye Retalkables. All right. So the category is named for Jim Trestle. And again, make the category work for you. The Jim Trestle punt or not to punt moment. I didn't think it was a punt moment, but it was a go for it moment. So the the one that you mentioned, Nathan, earlier, that's what I went with here. That fourth and one, 155 left in the second quarter. It's 10-10. They're around what, like the 20-yard line or so? Jim Trestle calls a timeout, thinks about it, sends them back out, and they run this play where – the Borans get their blocks. Brandon Singh gets the first down. And then they march and then wind up kicking a field goal anyway, which again is like the most Jim Trestle thing ever. It's like he went for it on fourth down. And they joked on the broadcast. Kirk Herbstreet said during the break, they were joking. If this were against Minnesota or Indiana, he would have kicked the field goal. But it was like, well, it's Oregon. We know we've got a score. So we'll, we'll be aggressive and go for it. And then they ran three terrible plays and, and kicked a field goal 30 seconds later. So but you kept the ball was, away from Oregon, too. That's the other part of it. And they didn't. Yeah, you, you didn't give Oregon the chance with, to run a two-minute drill and kind of run down the field and score. So, Nathan, did you, did you have a different punt or not to punt moment in, name it, in the honor of Jim Trestle? I had two different Chip Kelly uh, decisions, actually. I loved it. Early in this game, he goes for it on fourth and nine inside the OSU 30. And I think that's an area where even in college, this is like early second quarter. I think it's an area where even in college where kicking can be so unreliable, I'll see guys go for long field goals there. And I love that. I mean, you, you're, you know the offense you have. You know that you've got skills. You know that um, you've got an offense, especially that has defenses on its heels, even sometimes in advantageous spaces. And going for it on fourth and nine there, they convert it with a nice play. And uh, they go down and drive for a score. I thought that was a pretty big moment. Uh, I hated the decision kicking the 45-yard field goal down 26-17 with 5-16 left on fourth and two. That's I analytics. Thought that was, That's analytics. I think there you go. For, well, it's, the score might have been analytics. But I think there, fourth and two, with the opportunity you have there, I think, I think you go for it. I think you've got the, the edge there, again, with your offense, for the same reason that I'd go for it on fourth and nine. It's one of those things. You need two scores. So if you go for it on fourth down and go, don't get it, you're dead. They tried to kick, they kicked the field goal and they missed the field goal and they were dead. So that's the strategy of if you need two scores, I think analytics will sometimes say, well, just take the score because you got to get, the, you got to get two scores, whatever order right. you get them in. So, I mean, it like looks really bad and it looked like Chip Kelly after they missed the field goal, wanted to puke. Right. So, I mean, the, the strategy, but I get what you're saying, which is like, man, put the pedal to the metal. You're Oregon. Believe in your offense. Go, get the two yards. I know what you're saying. And I, I thought it was a bad call even before they missed the field goal. But for the same reason, though, I, I agree with what you're saying from the analytics standpoint. I'm the guy who's like, you don't go for two until you absolutely have to. I know that there's actually conflicting opinions out there, and then the math might even say the opposite thing sometimes. But I'm a, I'm a don't chase points until the absolute last minute. Give yourself a chance. But in this case, I think just from a, a rhythm of the game standpoint and what, what Oregon is and was at that moment, I, don't, I think you go for those two yards. Steven, Jim Trestle punt or not to punt moment of the game? 
Yeah, I had two as well. I had the one you already mentioned. And the reason why I also had that one was because Oregon had a fourth and three in the third quarter where they ended up going for it and they got it. And they ended up driving down and getting the touchdown and taking a 17 to 16 lead at the time instead of settling for a field goal and it being a 16 to 13 game. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that I do think you're, you're better off philosophically sort of being like, are you a go-for-it guy or a not-go-for-it guy? And it feels like what you guys are pointing out is Chip Kelly's a go-for-it guy, and then mm-hmm. went fourth and two with the game at, in, in, on the line, then he didn't go for it. So it's like a, it would go against sort of his philosophy regardless of the analytics. So I, I think you guys are making good points there. I, I, guess, I guess you could also argue, though, that Chip Kelly, in a weird way, was putting confidence in his offense by kicking the field goal there, saying, well, I know we can get the ball back, and I know we can get a touchdown. But right. I, I still go I, – I go for what's right in front of me, I think, there. The Bill Davis-Tim Beck questionable coaching moment of the game. Again, a lot of these great ideas that we're going to keep using every time we do a Buckeye retalkable – they come from our tech subscribers. And if you want to be a tech subscriber and be able to contribute to the podcast and get information in your phone directly from us, 614-350-3315. So 14-day free trial, $3.99 a month after that. It's fun. It's interesting. There's a lot going on. And we appreciate when the texters help us with stuff like this. Did you have a questionable coaching moment, Nathan? You know, it wasn't a... I don't know if it was specifically one moment. I mean, we talked a little bit before about just the, the Ohio State offense that it brought into this game being kind of like a very like almost playground looking thing where they with Terrell Pryor. And I thought that if uh, some more um, if they had been leaning already towards a more modern offense, if they had been maybe involving what we now consider more offensive football, I think that would have benefited them. It's hard to say that as a criticism because they won the game. They did. You know, I hate. I, I don't mind vert. I don't mind horizontal passing games. I, I hate a preponderance of horizontal passing. I think that comes from following the Chicago bears growing up and going through the John Shoup era as offensive coordinator, and then having to watch it again at, at Purdue later on uh, when I was covering that team. But it's, it's just, uh, it's, I, I don't understand it as a, as a, a bedrock of an offense. I thought there was too much of that, but I thought that the fact that Ohio state just controlled the game, controlled the clock, that doesn't always work. And there's been, you can see plenty of instances in that era of Oregon football where winning the time of possession still got you beat by like five touchdowns because they were just so explosive, but it clearly worked in that game. I guess the one example might've been um, the Ohio state's up seven to nothing. They've got third and four near the goal line and they run just again, one of these like, okay, Terrell Pryor has the ball and I guess something's going to happen. And I thought something, a, a real route where you got a guy into the end zone and threw to him. And then maybe Terrell Pryor can work off of that, but just something that was a little bit more, um, thought out something more aggressive something with something more precise would have been uh beneficial in those instances okay before we get to steven i i have to take a moment here because i believe there are people listening to this podcast right now who just heard what nathan baird had to say and it's a beautiful thing because nathan does not realize he has done this but nathan baird who did not follow ohio state in that era Many of the people listening to this podcast have been Ohio State fans for a very long time. Nathan, without realizing it, with that two-minute explanation, you perfectly (laughs) distilled the debate around Jim Tressel and Ohio State football that took place for the entire (laughs) Jim Tressel era. What is that offense? Well, it worked. Why don't they run plays? Well, they won. Why do all the receivers catch the ball standing still? Well, they still beat everybody. 
why won't Jim Tressel get an offensive coordinator? Well, I guess he's a good coach. <sighs> if I could count the number of stories and discussions around what you just said in the last 90 seconds, it is what it's all I covered. I still remember standing in a hallway in the Woody Hayes Athletic Center when people were like, we love Jim Tressel. Please stop calling plays. And I said, Jim, would you ever get an offensive coordinator? And he said, oh, I don't know. What would I do? Sit around and eat bonbons? And I'll never forget to sit around and eat bonbons. And it's like, I don't know. Maybe you'd sit around and watch a competent offense. But how <laughs> could you argue against it? They won six straight Big Ten championships to end his career. They won the first national championship at this school in 34 years under Jim Tressel. People now in retrospect, excuse me, in retrospect, and even the moment, they loved him. Here's the difference. They loved him. They did not love his offense. And I swear, the only time I ever saw Tim May, the great Tim May, write anything in the Columbus Dispatch that was ever like anything that had an opinion on it. I think they even gave it a column tag for this one thing. The, the column was basically like, hey, uh, why don't you ever throw to Ted Ginn Jr. while he's moving? And it was like, all for three years, they threw passes to Ted Ginn Jr. that were bubble screens that he caught flat-footed. And it's like, do you think the guy with Olympic speed, could you hit him on the run? Do you think that might work? Oh, Nathan. You had no idea the can of worms that you opened. I had but you should take a credit. little bit of an idea. You should take credit because from watching a single Jim Trestle game. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> you absorbed the entire Jim Trestle experience. They won a top 10 game in the Rose Bowl with an offense that made you want to pull your hair out. But yet it was kind of pretty effective and they kind of won – you know, by two scores, and what are you complaining about? But, oh, my gosh. Okay, Stephen, you are realizing this. Again, you were not covering the team, but you were absorbing oh, Ohio State football at the time. <laughs> Nathan just nailed it. <laughs> oh, I knew. I was an elementary school and middle schooler for most of Jim Trestle's tenure. But you knew that this was a terrible offense. That was very well known that it was awful. It was, it was awful. It was an eyesore, honestly, to watch. But he is the epitome of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Because when you're winning, can you really complain? We won, didn't we? And it's, it's, yeah, this was, after covering this team for the last two years, watching this again was just not, it was not fun to, see, to watch. But I, I will say, Nathan, to the point that you asked very early on here about sort of how big this was, right? Going into this game, this was a lot of, like, for every Ohio State fan that thought, man, I wish our offense was more exciting. Now you're playing Chip Kelly, who has guys popping up from underground tunnels right? And it's like, if Jim Tressel would have lost to that, I think it's possible if that had been the fourth big time bowl defeat in a row, I, I, not that he, people would have been calling for his head, but it would have been like, oh my gosh, like the game has passed him by. What are we doing? Where's our Chip Kelly, right? Where's our Chip Kelly? But then when you go out and you beat that, you control it, you silence that. So I do think that's an extra added layer. And I, I think a lot of Ohio State fans were feeling that going in. Here's the newfangled thing. Here comes our – here's this new sports car. Here's our very reliable family truckster. 
and the family truckster ran the sports car off the road. So what are you complaining about? I thought. I think, I think that's a major difference between you know, what Urban Meyer went through in 2016 and what Jim Trestle went through in this game, because Urban Meyer didn't beat the new shiny thing. And so he had to go get something to, you know, update the offense and move it forward and keep progressing. And that's why we have Ryan Day here now. That's how you get a Dwayne Haskins season. That's how you get, you know, Justin Fields. That's how you get two top 100 quarterbacks. And then you get a five-star quarterback the year after that. Because Jim Trestle won the game, he didn't have to go do that. If he would have – it would. I don't want to say it's better to lose sometimes, but maybe if he had lost this game, he would have been – as you said, he would have been able to update the offense and it wouldn't have been so far behind the rest of the world. I do wonder if there's a world where, like, Ohio State goes out and gets their doors blown off and Oregon beats them 50-3, to and Jim Tressel hires, like, East, East Carolina's offensive coordinator to run the yeah. spread at Ohio State because it's, like, it's a wake-up call for him of, like, man, the game passed us by. we got to figure something out. Not that that necessarily would have been better in the long run. Who knows? Maybe it would have accelerated because then Urban brought a different style of offense, but then, you know – Within five or six years, people thought Urban's style of offense was stale. So there's kind of a life cycle to a college football offense. And if you're going to succeed, I think you've got to update yourself. Jim Tressel got pushed out probably right at the point of where maybe there would have been a time when he would have had to adjust even more than he did. Um, but it's a, I think it's a fascinating discussion to talk about. Steven, did you have a Bill Davis, Tim Beck coaching, questionable coaching moment? No, not a moment, but I mean, Bill Davis and Tim Beck were just bad hires. I just think, as we've already talked about, I think with the quarterback situation and a lot of that development, that was less of a bad hire and more of a just, you know, misfortunate situation that happened and Terrell Pryor didn't get a chance to be developed by the guy he would have been developed by. So while the Urbans were bad hires, this was just a bad draw, you know, basically for Terrell Pryor's situation. Trestle let it happen too long. He could have he could have done more to fix it earlier. But mm-hmm. but you're right. It's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. But that that like well yeah the the decision was the guy you had in the room with Terrell Pryor. That's a really good point. Uh, I'm gonna go with Legarrette Blunt playing in this game for Oregon. This was the guy who cold cocked a Boise State player in the handshake line in the season opener when Oregon played Boise State, and Chip Kelly suspended him for the year. And then miraculously, he was unsuspended for the rivalry game against Oregon State when Oregon State's a top 25 team and then for the Rose Bowl. He's unsuspended for that. So listen, I mean, I get it. You're trying to give the guy an incentive to work back. So I thought maybe it was a little bit of karma that they handed the ball to LeGarrette Blunt and he dropped it and kicked it through the end zone. So, you know. It's a wild fumble. You know, Chip, you know, stuff happens, Chip. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you suspend the guy, you suspend the guy. And then, oh, now we might need him to win, so now he's unsuspended, and whoops, he kicked the ball out of the end zone 30 yards and gave Ohio State a turnover. So I'm just saying, I'm just saying, right, comes back on you. I believe in second chances and that kind of thing when second chances happen to coincide with your chances of winning a football game. uh, I'm a little more uh, skeptical, let's say, of second chances. Kenny Guyton, next man up award. Nathan, who do you got? Who's the guy who stepped in and, and filled the shoes of somebody? This is where I put the, the Petri Barkley dynamic duo um, guy having to, to – I know it wasn't like immediate that had already been going on, but um, somebody who um, having that, that second guy there I think may have made a difference in a game this tight. Steven, who's your next man up? Yeah, that's what I was going to say as well. So. Okay, so I was confused by this early in the game because, again, I have a terrible memory. I remember talking to John Gruden. I can like picture it right now. Everything else about this game, I don't remember anything. I remember Jim Cordell at – 
at Disneyland, actually. They had him set up on little like director's chairs. And I remember Jim Cordell was very excited to go on the Matterhorn. That I remember. Um, but they talked about in this game early on, they were talking about the two guys that Ohio State was missing at receiver because Ray Small and Deron Carter were both suspended for this game along with Rob Rose. And Rob Rose is a defensive lineman, Ray Small, a receiver. They were both from Glenville High School. Um, Ray in particular, Ray had a really rough Ohio State career. Um, I wrote a really big feature like on senior day about Rob Rose and Ray Small and like how they had sort of like pushed through and turned the corner and here they were as seniors. And then they both got suspended for the bowl. And I was like, okay, great job, Doug. Way to have your finger on the pulse. Um, and I'm not making light of this. And then, I, and then, I mean, however many years ago it was now, I guess in 2014 or 15, I went and interviewed Ray in prison so that Ray, Ray got off track. Ray got off track in a big way. And he got kind of caught up in some of the tattoo gate stuff. Um, and he wound up in prison when I did a big series sort of like revisiting uh, everybody from the tattoo gate scandal. So um, I always, I understood Jim Trestle and the second chances that he gave Ray Small. I think when you're a state university and you have some, some kids who need an opportunity, uh, he had a great relationship. We know with Ted Ginn Sr., who was the coach at Glenville. I mean, I, I believe in that. And I think Ray Small got third and fourth chances, but here it was at the end and he got suspended. But they were talking on the broadcast and I blame Kirk Herbstreet and Brent Musburger. They were talking about Deron Carter and Ray Small, like they were these great losses. And I was like, what? I was like, is that that big a deal? And they were like, oh, now they've got to rely on these young receivers, Devere Posey and Dane Sanzenbacher. And by the way, for the entire first half, Brent Musburger thought Dane Sanzenbacher's last name started with a Z because he was calling him Zanzenbacher. It's Sanzenbacher, Brent. That's the second time we've watched a game where guys didn't, the broadcasters did not know how to pronounce the name of a prominent Ohio State player. So then I checked the stats. Devere Posey led Ohio State with 60 receptions this year. Dane Sanzenbacher had 36. Ray Small had 15, and Deron Carter had 13. And they started off the broadcast acting like Deron Carter and Ray Small not being there was going to like change the Ohio State offense. So the next man up was like they didn't actually need next man up, except Brent Musburger and Kirk Street, Herb Street made it sound that way. But I did like at the end when Devere Posey caught the game, the last touchdown of the game, they showed him on the bench, and he said to the camera. No, no, you're taking my mean moment. <laughs> no, no, no. There's no taking. We said, okay. and, now listen. Yeah. We said, you guys, when your moment comes up, then you we'll talk okay. about it. Nobody owns the moments. You're right. The they only is, own the game. The game it's is true. for all of us. That's true. But he said, Smalley and Duran, you're here too, or whatever mm -hmm. he said. So obviously, Stephen, you studied that moment even more than I did. What exactly did. did Devere Posey say? The, not exactly. I didn't study it to that point, but it, I think it was more. You, I you heard what he said. When I mentioned, when was, I you think screamed the thing at that, me, the and mean, now you're saying. The me moment is not necessarily what he said. It's the fact that Terrell Pryor noticed the camera was there first and told Devere Posey and everybody else who was sitting on the bench to say something to the camera. Oh, okay. More than it, yeah, that was my me. Yours is more heart, well, heartfelt. Mine is just. So it's, it's oh, not actually the same thing at all. So no, I, didn't, I, I didn't step on you at all. No, you're good. You screamed like you were Doug screaming in that moment that I, I took your meme. Um, but I, I will like say it. I was I, I was going to take the uh, Stephen Mean shortcut to an A here when I heard on the broadcast that they were going to that these guys were suspended. And I was like, well, I'll just go look at the box score and then whatever receiver <laughs> had other catches, then that'll be my my guy who stepped up. 
no other receivers had catches. It was just <laughs> Devere Posey and um, and Sanzabacher. That's it. Like I said, it's the only two receivers that caught passes in that game. So and then one to a tight end and some running backs. So basically the same thing they did all year. Yeah. Yeah, like, it was no different. <laughs> they were They were fine. Like it, it didn't, it didn't matter, but Posey and Sansabach, like I love, I mean, like, and then the next year they were both back. They were really good in 2010. They're a great duo. Yeah. They're, they're two really good receivers who never really made it. Like at the next level, Devere had a career in the CFL. Devere was a third round pick, I think, and just like sort of didn't catch on and had a CFL career. I really like both those guys. They're really good receivers. Um, so I just thought it was funny. It was like, I was like, Oh, here's the next men up. And then it was like, no, they actually weren't. It was fine but I blame the broadcast for screwing me up. The John Cooper, if a bite, will bite as a pup. Mine, as I said, was Zach Boren. Who was a young guy that flashed for you, Steven? John Simon had a little moment. Um, he had the one tackle. He had a little moment in the game. Obviously, he didn't get to play that much because, like I said, this is an era where Jim Trestle was playing most of the upper class when there's not a lot of you know freshmen and sophomores who are playing in this game. But he had a moment, and it's just not necessarily that you bit. It's just, oh, wow, that guy's you know was, has been one of the best – pass rushers in the NFL for the past decade. So it's just, you know, seeing him as a, as a true freshman in this game, getting the chance to have a moment in the game. That's my guy. Who is your guy, Nathan? Yeah, those are the, the guys that I had written down to. Um, I also – I did see – I was watching uh, the scene at the end, like after they won and they were milling around on the field. I caught a glance at Jerry Emig wandering behind Terrell Pryor, a younger Jerry with more brown in his beard, not as much white and gray. Um, and I caught like a, a view of like young – Redshirt freshman Corey Lindsley, like wandering around on the field of the Rose Bowl, like he had no idea what he was doing. He looked like he was 12 years old, uh, and now he's been an NFL center for like 10 years, eight years. So, um, but I thought Zach as a freshman was really good there. So they had a couple good nominees there. Ted Ginn Jr. Speed moment of the game, another great texter idea. Nathan, who was fast in this game? I picked an Oregon guy for this, and it was Kenyon Barner, and that Ooh. was one of the reasons yeah. why I, I was Steven, also. Steven, you picked him too. Yeah. I picked him too. Let's just thought, discuss it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just it what fascinates me is when teams have the kind of speed that they can do things to Ohio State that other teams can't do. And and he was a guy who could flip the field on whether it was in special teams. I thought that was crucial at times because Oregon, as we said, wasn't really moving the ball great at times. But if you could just give them that foundation of, of giving yourself a some room behind you to start a, a drive, that could make a, a big effect. And then also just he was a guy that they could hand off to and he could get around the edge. You don't see a lot of guys. I think this is probably universal truth, right, throughout Ohio State football almost – we don't see guys who can get to the edge against they They usually have the speed edge on defense, even against really fast offenses, but that wasn't the case. Barner could do that. I thought he was just a really impressive player. You, you, you kind of thought to yourself, how would Ohio state have wasted him? If he had been Ohio state at that time. Nathan, I love it. God, you are such in the Jim <laughs> Trestle zone. You truly, you, I was trying to imagine, this. I was trying to imagine five days a week, Buckeye talk during that era of offense. And what, what the text would have been, just a, just a deluge of them. No, awful. Can I tell you how awful it was? And, like, and I'm, I'm not complaining, but I, the listeners can, can relate to this. That era of Ohio State football, all it was was complaining about wins until they then got to a bowl game and were, like, the second best team in the country, and then you complained about not winning a national title. They won. They dominated the Big Ten. They didn't look particularly flashy doing it. And all it was was complaining about 26 to 12 wins week after week after week. And if we had Buckeye talk then, it would have gone off the air 
after 10 episodes because every episode and every week was the same. It was unbelievable. And it's like, you can look back now and be like, wow, what a great era it was. It was painful at times. And if there's anybody listening to this who disagrees, sign up for the text and tell me otherwise. 614-350-3315. It was a weird thing. And I thought fans went too far sometimes. But the idea of like, you are, this is a very privileged fan base. You've won six straight Big Ten titles and it feels like drudgery. That's what that era was. Yeah, it, it, it was a great era, but a lot of the complaints were valid because you would get on that stage and get wiped off the field. Because as we talk about, Ohio State isn't comparing itself to the other Big Ten schools. It's comparing itself to the best teams in the country. And during that era, all the best teams in the country, for the most part, were in the SEC. And so, so yes, I'm not saying – listen, I'm not saying that I'm okay with the fact that they com- it was a complaint every single week, but it was just when you got on that stage, a lot of that was validated. They had not won – I mean, it, it was a different place in Ohio State football. Jim Trestle won yeah. the first national championship in 34 years. They get back and t- four years later, they're number one the whole year. And then it's the rise of the SEC. Mm-hmm. The rise of the SEC, I mean, I don't know any, that anybody could have stopped that. But when you have Urban Meyer and then Nick Saban soon after, and the Big Ten was as good as any – was the best conference going for a while, and then that happened. They, the SEC kind of fills the – the U goes down, and the SEC fills the gap. And, man, it was just a different world. And, and that was a time – Ohio State football was not yet at the point where you were supposed to be competing, where that was the only definition, because they were not that far into starting to dominate Michigan. I mean, coming when Jim Trestle was hired, nobody was talking about Ohio State needs to be winning national championships every year. They were talking about, please, God, can we beat Michigan? So Trestle's doing that. Trestle's, I mean, he wins the first national championship in 34 years, but he also is the transitional figure that gets you from Cooper, who can't even win your most important conference game, to Urban who is now the, the, the most important conference game, not that it's an afterthought, but it's taken for granted that you're going to win, and now you go to the next level. But to, but to believe then that Jim Trestle was failing because he lost to Urban Meyer and all that talent, or he lost to Glenn Dorsey and Ricky Jean Francois and all that crazy LSU talent, or that he lost to Colt McCoy and all those Texas receivers, and that was a failure, I think that was an unrealistic expectation at the time. So I, I had a lot of trouble um trying to write about that and trying to discuss it with fans because there was just there was so much it was it was so good during the regular season and so bad in the postseason and again Nathan back to your original point that's what was at stake that's what was hanging over this program in six seven and eight the way things had gone in the championship games and the fiesta bowl to bust that was truly, was really a very big deal. Um, so Kenyon Barner, one punt return for 28, four kickoff returns for 122, seven rushes for 64. Next level kind of guy. He was a true freshman in this game. His senior year at Oregon, he had 2,000 yards from scrimmage. The guy, is, he's, he's unbelievable. But like, like, I know LaMichael James was a big deal coming into this game. Kenyon Barner, to me, Michael James was fast. Kenyon Barner was like the step beyond that. And this was just a a taste of him. He only had like 300 yards from scrimmage during this regular season. He had 396. 396. And by senior year, he's over 2,000. Rushes for 1767 as a senior. So I just thought that guy, 
that guy leaped off the screen and that this category is named for Ted Ginn Jr. That's what Ted Ginn Jr. is like. He looks like he's, he is playing the game at a different speed than anybody else on the field. And that's what Kenyon Barner was doing in this game for Oregon. Yeah, before I, before I remember that I've seen this game before, when he's take that 28-yard punt return, I think he was, he was one block away from taking that back. Yeah, they almost are lucky it, that it didn't hurt him more. Yeah, that he didn't take one to the house. That he just set him up in really good field position time after time, but he didn't. He didn't like flip the game on his own quite. But he really set up Oregon. Style check, Nathan. You're stylish. What's your check? What'd you think of the styles from ten years ago? I find it ironic that I'm sort of uh, wearing Oregon colors almost. I've got some green going on here. And listen, so I'm going to name check a couple of good friends of mine who probably don't listen to this podcast. But uh, my buddy Greg Thomas, who's from Oregon. Um, has lived in Indiana for a long time um, as a transplant and uh, my buddy and he grew up an Oregon fan and my buddy Phil Friend who grew up in, in Indiana but around this era became an Oregon fan and at one point both those guys were living with me and they were huge Oregon fans and I we got in long arguments about how terrible these Oregon uniforms are I hate the modern Oregon uniform and they're uh, the, the, the the more garish the like neon yellow uh, sharpie colored stuff uh, I think they're atrocious I don't really like the 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 feathers on the, the shoulder pads. So I was kind of looking forward to, oh, you know, I think this will actually be maybe a better era of Oregon uniforms. Maybe we'll actually get something good. And I was prepared to give them props. And then as I'm watching this game, I realized that if I was up in the sport in the, up in the press box, I would be a sports writer watching a team wearing ground colored uniforms. Cause they are almost exactly the same color as the turf with like faint yellow lines for the numbers. And I just wrote them off immediately. I wanted them all to, to never play football again. The, the fact that we got a Nathan-style complaint about Oregon's uniforms is the least surprising part of this podcast. But I'm here for it. I liked it. N- Steven, not here for it, was playing a fake no. violin for Nathan there. Yeah, no. I, I, I love where Oregon has gone. I thought they could have come a little bit harder in this game. I remember one year they wore those chrome helmets, where, and it was really sunny, and so it was basically a cheat code because you couldn't see off the helmets. Um, yeah, I think they could have come a little harder in this game. But I hated the face mask in this era of college football. I just hated them. I don't know why. They just looked weird. They looked a little crooked. I didn't like the way the ear holes were on Terrell Pryor's helmets. I didn't like those at all. But Oregon, I like it for what it was, but I just think they could have came a little harder with the fashion. So my style check is going to be about the sweater vest. I just caught a moment of myself where Jim Tressel, when he came off the field at halftime and he was being interviewed by Lisa Salters, and she was asking him a question. He was standing there pursing his lip and nodding along with the question and wearing a sweater vest. And she was like, you know, what do you think? And he was like, well, you know, it's been, it's been a tough game and Terrell's done a fine job and we're going to all have to do our best and we'll see where things happen the second half. And I was like, man, I kind of missed that. I kind of missed like a guy like nodding along with you, just looking like a, like a nice old guy in a sweater vest and then just saying nothing. And it was just like, it was just like a real trust moment for me. So I just, it was like, we all know that, but we haven't seen it in a while live, right? So to catch the full sweater vest effect, because the sweater vest is not just a piece of laundry. It's a defining characteristic. Jim, Twes- Jim Tressel, in the end, didn't wear a sweater vest. He was a sweater vest. And I don't mean that negatively. And I don't think he would take it negatively. But it was just like the full Tressel experience. And then I also just want to say, Lisa Salter, sideline reporter, coming in hot post game, And I'm here for it. She was like, a lot of people said, Jim, that you had handcuffed Terrell Pryor in the last several games. And would you allow, would you take the handcuffs off in this game? And he was like, 
She's like, what do you think of people who said that? And he's like, well, I think you've been talking to the wrong people. And it was just like, they just, that, but that, that's the whole, that was the Ohio State experience. And you were so frustrated by what they had done in the past with the lack of offense. Then when they win the Rose Bowl and Terrell Pryor plays the best game he ever played, then the question is like, well, where has this been before? Because you were so frustrated, he didn't throw more than 17 passes in any game for the last month. That was the experience. So just the whole Jim Trestle thing and the sweater vest, I missed it. I had a, a former sports writer friend who's already more jaded 20 years ago than I am even now. And he used to make this crack about, you know, these coaches, like college coaches, like they don't, they don't want to admit that they were like one break away from just being a junior high math teacher somewhere and like Jim Trestle is one of the first people who actually dresses like it. Like he can, like you can see national championship coach and president of Youngstown University, Youngstown State University, or like assistant middle school principal. And it's the same uniform. It's the same outfit. And I think he'd be fine. Like, yeah. again, I, I don't want to feed too much into the Trestle thing because I've always maintained, I mean, Jim Trestle wanted to diagram up a, up a game plan and beat your butt on a football field. I think a lot of us went too far with the senatorial kind of thing. I mean, he's a down and dirty football guy too. He just wants to get and see if my guys can beat your guys. And he grew up in it. Everybody knows the story of his father, Lee Trestle, great Baldwin Wallace coach, had a chance to play Ohio state. The war came just, you know, he grew up in, in the game. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I mean, I don't think, and we see Jim Trestle doing it now. I mean, everybody thought, is he going to coach again? He's, I mean, he's very happy. He's in a very powerful position. He's not, an assistant middle school principal, but I bet you if he was an assistant middle school principal, he would enjoy it and he'd be quite good at it. Meme it. So Steven, you, you got, is there anything to add to your meme it of the sideline thing, but that just Terrell noticing the camera? No, it's just that I always like when, you know, players on sidelines notice cameras and have their little bit to say, especially after they made a big play. Nathan, meme it. The uh, like the very first play of the game or one of the first like uh, might have been the third down run that Pryor made with the Miami linebacker just like trips and falls on his face. I thought that was something that would make for a good meme. Um, kind of just like, oh, wait, this is, you know, Terrell Pryor has arrived or whatever. And then also um, the, the dancing duck. I love the dancing duck as much as I hate the uniforms. I love the dancing duck. And then Sully with the coin toss. I thought like, you know, oh, Sully bringing the coin toss in for a landing. Who did who's Sully? Charles Sully Sullenberger. He was like the grand no marshal. He was like the he did the he did the coin toss before the game. That was yeah, that long ago. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I missed that. I missed the whole Sully thing. Oh, he's an American hero, man. Um, huh? yeah. How about Sully? Well, congratulations, Sully. Um, by the way, do you know where Charles Sullenberger went to college? Purdue. I'm doing this just for my just for the textures. <laughs> of course, it was Purdue. So I had two memes. One was when uh, Dane Sanzenbacher got flipped on a hit when he went up for a pass and got his legs taken out and he landed on his head. And, uh -oh. and the announcers were like, oh, he landed on his head. And I was just like, I'm not sure we would deal with a guy landing on his head like that these days. It was sort of like, wow, that was a big hit. And he landed right in his head. And then like Dane was fine, but it was kind of like a weird, awkward landing. And I didn't feel like Brent Musburger and Kirk Herbstreet like took it particularly seriously. But the other one, and this is for diehard Ohio State fans, J.B. Shugarts had a false start in this game. And the J.B. Shugarts false starts became a running Ohio State joke. This was his sophomore year. He's a starting right tackle as a sophomore in the Rose Bowl. I came across a, a tweet from Ramsey Nasrallah from, from 11 Warriors, who's a very funny guy. He, I think he tweeted, 
whatever J, uh, JB Shugart's last bowl game was, um, he tweeted like JB Shugart's has now false started in all four of his career bowl games. That it was just <laughs> the JB Shugart's false start thing. I mean, if you say that to anyone who was an Ohio State fan around 2010 or so, they will just nod and nod and nod. And so he had, it was not much. He just started to tilt a little bit and fall back in his stance. He was just a flincher, man. He's one of the flinchiest offensive linemen I've ever, ever seen. But as soon as he's false started in this game, I was like, oh, that's old and familiar. Let me slide into that old J.B. Shugart's bathroom. False start. That felt good. All right. Maurice Claret, game-saving moment. We have gone an hour and 20 minutes into this podcast, and the most famous play of this game has not been mentioned once yet. And so I'm imagining we all have the same game-saving moment unless we're missing something here. Steven, your game-saving moment. Jake Ballard's catch where he basically jumped out of the stadium to make a catch. That's, I mean, yeah, it's a big, big play. Nathan, that's yours as well or no? Yeah, 100%. Like I said, like I said I was, I, when I went back and looked at the box score, I'm like, well, there's like one catch that wasn't by those two guys. Who was it? And it turned out to be a huge one. So I'll rerun it real quick. I, I wrote about this after the game. Can I, is it okay if I just say this real quick? I'm also enjoying this. Uh, I like going back and reading my writing from some of this stuff. I'm pretty good at this. I, I spun some pros off this. I, I feel that way guys. sometimes. I feel it. I wouldn't almost, say 100% of the time. I feel it but almost every time. I do. I actually, though, I, I, I actually do. Like in the moment, I'm much more self critical. And then a lot of times I'll go back like two years later and come across something I don't remember writing and be like, oh, I think I actually kind of, that made, I, I did a thing there. Like that made sense. So I wish I did, I did that every time. I did a lot back then. I did like a report card. I did a running clock thing where I, I, I follow what was happening in the game like moment by moment. I, I would write four or five. This is back when I was covering the beat by myself. Um, and I would write four or five or six pieces after every game. And I did that in this game. So this is not great prose. This is from a clock thing I did. But it's the Jake Ballard catch. A crucial third and 13 play with the Buckeyes only ahead 19-17 and on their own 45-yard line. Give the ball up here, and Oregon should have a chance to march for the go-ahead field goal. Cue that Jake Ballard leap. As Pryor scrambles to his right, about to be pulled down, he lofts a pass for his senior tight end, who admits he was way down on the list of options for the play. He went about 10 feet in the air, Jim Cordell said. We've seen Jake Ballard's ability on the basketball court, DeVere Posey said, so he went up and grabbed it and dunked on that guy. I jumped and I thought I jumped too early, Jake Ballard said. Then I kept going up, so maybe the adrenaline helped me get a couple more inches. He grabs it between defenders, a 24-yard gain that keeps the drive alive. I just heard a commercial on Columbus Radio the other day that Jake Ballard was on the commercial. So Jake Ballard is, again, on this list of, like, really talented Ohio State tight ends who never got the ball enough. That is perhaps – Devin Smith had a couple, too. There's a Devin Smith end zone catch. Devin Smith was a high jumper. This is right there, maybe the best example of high point in a football and going up and making a play that I've seen in 15 years covering this team. I mean, you rewind that. Ballard said he thought he jumped early. Man, he got up there. He was – two feet above any Oregon defender, but he went up and got that thing. And everybody knows what play we're talking about. And it's against that purple Pasadena sky. But man, like if you think that, that you remember this play, even if you remember it and you've seen it a hundred times, when you watch it the hundred and first time, Nathan, it's like unbelievable. 
Yeah, I mean, again, not knowing even anything really about him other than the fact that he's a, a tight end, and, and you can just look at him and see that he's probably not the guy that would be going up and grabbing those plays. It's it's it was impressive, and it 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 saves a game. I mean, like that's why we call it this moment. But like, if they if they don't come through there, I think all the momentum does shift back to Oregon. It's just once in a while those guys pick their moment, and that was his. And that that's a pretty crowded catch. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like yep. it was a one on one opportunity. That was. There were a few people around him, and he had to go up there and make that cut. So, yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, those, he didn't get used much. It's one of those all. all-time plays, and it's, it's, not, it's not overrated. When you go back, and then they have a really good camera angle on it, man, it's, it's really quite a, quite a play by Jake Ballard. All right, we'll come back. Last two things. Last three things. Does this look like a championship Ohio State team? The enjoyment meter for the average college football fan and the enjoyment meter for Buckeyes fans. We'll be back to wrap up this Rose Bowl Buckeye retalkables right after this. Nathan Baird, does that look like an Ohio State championship team? Big 10 championship, obviously. Yes, I think that I'm fine with that. And then this goes back to the other question that we were having before about the offense, though. I keep watching this. I'm like, is this dynamic enough to beat the other very best teams in college football? And I don't – I guess I lean no. That's the reason why they sometimes – this team wasn't playing in a game like that, and they didn't always get to play for a national championship, although nobody ever does. But it, it, it does make – it did make me question myself, though. Like, am I criticizing the aesthetic, or am I criticizing where this offense really is coming short? Because that, that's two different things. So your vote in the end is for national championship team, no. No. Steven? No. I, I think the, the idea of we're going to live and die by this one player, that's good in one game if it's like – I mean, Texas did it with Vince Young to win a national championship, but that can't be a full season if that's all you have. Texas even that season had Jamal Charles in the backfield. So, no, you can't rely that much on one play, even if it is your quarterback. They did a lot of promos for the national championship game during this Rose Bowl. Colt McCoy leading Texas, Mark Ingram, the Heisman winner, leading Alabama. Uh, this is the game where Colt McCoy got hurt, right? Garrett Gilbert had to come in. Um, but they had a big conversation at the end about how people questioning whether Ohio State's defense had enough speed to keep up with Oregon, right? And then Kirk Herbstreit was saying like, oh, you know, I mean, look at these guys. There's a lot of Buckeyes in the pros. I'll tell you, I mean, anybody questioning Ohio State's speed, you know, they showed they could keep up. Not true. Like, I mean, like, again, it, it's hard, and this isn't necessarily a fair comparison, but, like, show me Chase Young. Show me Jeff Okuda. Show me Ryan Shazier. Show me, like, this was not a great, super talented Ohio State defense. It was solid, but as we said, Cam Hayward's the only Ohio State player that's a first-round pick out of here. These are the defenders who played in this game and were drafted, though. Thaddeus Gibson, fourth round. Doug Worthington, seventh round. Kurt Coleman, seventh round. And Kurt Coleman was a really good college player and turned out to be a really good NFL player. He should have gone higher than the seventh. Austin Spittler, seventh round. The next year, Cam Haywood, first. Chimdi Chekwit, corner, fourth round. Very good player. The best corner on the field for Ohio State. Not Marshawn Lattimore. Not Bradley Roby. Not Denzel Ward. Not Jeff Okuda. Not Sean Wade. Jamel Hines. I loved Jermail Hines, fifth rounder. Brian Roll, sixth rounder at linebacker. Ross Homan, sixth rounder at linebacker. Listen, man, they're just a cut below on the talent level. And we can pretend it's not true. This is not, it's not, this is not a compete with Alabama and Texas 
kind of team right there. So no, it's not. And they weren't even, again, a couple years earlier with Troy Smith, with Ted Ginn Jr., with James Laurinaitis and Malcolm Jenkins. Those teams had more talent. These guys were coming, right? This was this 2008 recruiting class that was super highly ranked. But they were sophomores in this game. And then actually that recruiting class didn't quite hit the way people thought it maybe would, right? Devere Posey, very good player. Mike Adams, very good. Mike Brewster, very good. Terrell Pryor, very good. Not program-changing players, though, as it turns out. So, like, in the moment, I think Ohio State was facing some criticism, and then it was like, ha-ha, they proved that they shouldn't be criticized. And then it's like, well, they won. It's a really good win, but also let's not go too far because clearly they're just a cut below. If we were doing tiers, Ohio State back then, tier two, no doubt about it. Not, not tier one, right? At least in this season. Maybe they were there in tier one. I mean, they lost consecutive national title games in six and seven. So I guess they're tier one. But by this season, this is not tier one. I can't tell you that it's tier one. Enjoyment meter. First for the average college fan, Nathan. Scale of one to a thousand. Oh, I forgot it was a thousand. I was going, uh, so 850. Why did we pick a thousand instead of just? Because, in my, because I don't like points. I don't like decimals. Uh-huh. So a, a scale of one to a thousand allows you to go 850 without having to go 8.5 out of 10. But also in my family, we say on a scale of one to a thousand and also it allows you to go to nine, 913, 673, 401, right? right. I mean, if, if you're doing one to 10, nobody ever said, I give this a 7.87. Nobody would ever say that. I'm going to say 844. Didn't that feel good to say that? It gives you it's, <laughs> it's more room to maneuver. So that's still pretty high. Like, fun to watch if you're just a college football fan yeah i mean it was it was competitive into the fourth quarter some big plays you got to see uh this this flashy new offense in in oregon you got to see um you know the the duck the the uniforms i think there's a lot of stuff that a casual fan that that would appeal to a casual fan steven what's your rating 900 it's the rose bowl come on i mean that takes it up a little bit but also yeah you're seeing Trestle ball versus the future of college football. And everybody kind of knew that right yeah, then. But, well, but, but, but trestle the, ball might be the reason why they didn't like it very much. <laughs> that it would be painful for people to watch. Well, so maybe that kinda, alone should be that should that's probably like hundred and fifty six of the or hundred and fifty five of the hundred and fifty six missing points from my eight forty four. And I do think if you came into this game being like, listen, I like college football, Oregon's way on the West Coast. Hey, they have this first year head coach hey, I heard they're pretty good and they kind of play this crazy kind of offense. You know, let me tune in for that. Um, they lost 19-8, to eight, Oregon did, to Boise State to open the season. Here's their point totals then after that. 38-31-42-52-24-43-47-42-44-44-37. They score 17 against Ohio State. So if you tuned in as a casual observer wanting to watch the Chip Kelly show, I mean, Jim Trestle – kind of threw a rock through your window, right? I mean, it was like, hey, where's the Chip Kelly show? And it's like, oh, Cam Hayward screwed it up. So I said 800, still pretty good, but not like totally explosive, which you might have assumed. Competitive, again, competitive, great Jake Ballard play, great com- final touchdown from prior to Devere Posey. Some really fun things. Barner, every time he touched the ball was electric. Some fun stuff, but I said 800. And I think maybe you would have thought, tuning in man chip kelly's gonna make gonna give me a thousand in this game so now the buckeye meter nathan your buckeye meter is it higher or lower than the average college fan watching without a rooting interest 
it's it's about the same. I went like 809 for this. I don't think a big difference. I think always that Ohio State fans just always want more. But, I mean, they needed a win in a bowl game. They hadn't won in a couple years. They needed to see Terrell Pryor step up and kind of lead one of those wins. They needed to see their defense. And really, as, as much as it was their defense, it was also their offense keeping Oregon off the field and, and limiting a team like this, kind of like to show that what they were doing – was correct, although I think for a lot of fans, it was probably just as frustrating, right? That Like, it, it reinforces, like, what we were talking about before. Like, it reinforces that they're just going to keep doing what they've been doing, and I know it worked, but I don't want them to do it anymore. So, I, I love your reasoning. I, I, I quibble with your rating, but, Stephen, did you give a higher rating for the enjoyment of the average college fan or for an Ohio State fan? Of the Ohio State fan, I gave a 917 rating. And the reason why is one, they won a bowl game finally, but also coming into the game, it's the, you know, this is the offense we should be running. And this is, this, we're, get, we're going to see a team do what we should be doing, and we're not doing it. I want us to do this. And now Chessel gets to see it up close and personal. And maybe the disappointment, uh, if there is disappointment in winning, is the fact that you beat the offense that you think your team should be running. But the, the, the getting a chance to see what you think your team should be doing. Ohio State's playing in the Rose Bowl, and also they finally won a bowl game after a few years of losing in, in postseason play. That's 9-17. Yeah, I gave it 9-50, and I'm with, I'm with Steven there. And I think, Nathan, your reasoning of, like, all the reasons that Ohio State fan would enjoy it, I mean, that's, that's it, which is why I think it's significantly higher on the enjoyment level for an Ohio State fan than a casual college fan. Again, I said 800 for a regular fan, 950 for an Ohio State fan, because you did not know where Ohio State fit in the national landscape. They were dominating the Big Ten. Michigan stunk in this period of time. This is the, the dregs of Michigan. So what does beating Michigan even mean? Who cares? They had not won a postseason game in three years, and you're going to the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl is always a big deal. They hadn't been to the Rose Bowl in a while. And then you go out and you beat the new shiny thing. And it, like it was a relief. You get to go into the offseason on a high instead of on a low. I think, it was a, I think it was a really big deal for Ohio State fans. And that, you know, all the stuff we talked about, yes, it's frustrating, but it, but it worked. This is a moment well, where you would take a win however it has to happen, right? I don't know that when it's the Rose Bowl and it's your first bowl win in four years – I don't know that you're going to quibble with how the offense looked. You're just going to say it worked. I think it restored, it restored some pride in Ohio State football. The Rose Bowl is a gigantic deal. You saw Oregon the next year. Oregon's playing for it all, right? I mean, that's how good Oregon is, but you beat them. And then as it turns out, by a year, a year from this is when it all starts to fall apart. So this that was, was, I thought we were going to talk more about that, actually, about how watching a thing before it just dis dissolves and the people don't know that it's about to happen. I remember, like, growing up watching um, things about the 86 World Series and you watch, like, the Red Sox all cheering in the dugout because they think they're about to win game six and they can feel it coming on. And then you know that the Buckner play is going to happen. Like, I kind of feel like that watching this Ohio State team. Like, they, they don't know yet just how wrong this is all going to go. So, I mean, they have 11 months. They have a full regular season to get through, and we don't realize that, I mean, the investigation is going to start before then, and I've told this story before. This is the offseason after this Rose Bowl. I did a gigantic story on how Jim Tressel had integrated all of his personal characteristics and merged them 
with the Ohio State football program and so that they were almost one, that Ohio State had been Ohio State, but now they were this trestleized version of Ohio State. And he had a very specific style and a very specific brand. And now that's what Ohio State was. And what a, what a, a thing it was that he wasn't just winning, but he had just created this world. And I'm talking to everybody. I talked to Les Wexner for that story. It's the only time I ever talked to Les Wexner. I'm talking to everybody. And as I'm talking to people about Jim Tressel creating this version of Ohio State built in his own image, the NCAA is simultaneously investigating his program. And it is starting to crumble from within right when I was writing about how it had reached its strongest place. So it is a very strange world. Like this is, this is like the last hurrah, but it's, it's far enough away. I mean, it almost makes me want to go like, maybe we should do the sugar bowl, right? The sugar bowl that Terrell Pryor and those guys got to play in against Arkansas after all of this happened, which was in the midst of it, right? That was all at the heart of all this stuff. Um, and that would be interesting, but yeah, I mean, I think Nathan, you make a good point. This was still like pure, Ohio State. Now they had the Claret stuff a couple of years ago. It's not like they'd ever had anything before. Right. But but Tressel was pure at this point. Nobody really had versions of any questions about him. And, and we can debate that some other time of what people think about him now. And were some people too hard on him then and made too big of a deal of it. But that is what's coming. And it's, it's interesting to think about. I liked it. I liked watching it. Right? And then again, Chip Kelly... It's hard to believe now that Chip Kelly is the coach of a crappy UCLA team that can't get out of its own way. Like when you watch this Chip Kelly, right? Nathan, this guy is like, this guy's got it all going on. I'm trying to think of another, uh, an, an analogy of a, a coach that was like so on top of the world and had like been, been such an innovator, had changed the game. I mean, like we, the, the football we watch now is a lot of, what Chip Kelly was doing in this game that nobody else is doing. And then to now just be kind of a, eh, he's another guy. Like, like afterthought. Just, yeah. Afterthought. I mean, you forget that Chip Kelly is coaching kind of now. Yeah. I mean, to think about it again, this was his first year as a head coach. He went 10 and three. 2010, 12 and one, 2011, 12 and two, 2012, 12 and one. He goes to the NFL. Everybody wants him first year in the NFL in 2013, 10 and six makes the playoffs second year in 2014, 10 and six. And now here's the dividing line. 2015 with the Eagles six and nine gets fired at the end of the year, goes to the Niners two and 14 with the Niners sits out for a year, comes back with UCLA three and nine, four and eight. And that's what Chip Kelly is. He started his career with six winning seasons. He's now on four losing seasons since then. It is amazing to think about. Steven, did you enjoy that Rose Bowl rewatch? I did. I, I, I thought it was a lot more enjoyable than I thought, you know, watching Trestle Ball would be. I'm an older guy. But I, I think looking at it from that perspective and looking at what Oregon could have been, I'm not saying they would have been as dominant as Clemson is right now, but I think that had he stayed at Oregon a little bit longer, he could have had a Clemson-like run where maybe they are, you know, in the conversation as one of the, you know, top two in the BCS national championship game conversation year in and year out. And maybe it ends around the time the playoff comes around, but he could have done what Dabo Sweeney has done at Clemson. So he got in some NCAA hot water at the end. Yeah. Um, 
they used some scouting services. They wound up with three years of probation, some reduction of scholarships. They did not get a bowl ban. He got an 18 month show cause penalty. Um, so a little bit, I think he, he got out while the getting was good. Right. But then he wound up back in the same conference in a worse situation. So it's mm-hmm. like, if he had to do it all over again, I, I think Clemson is a very interesting comparison there. I mean, it's the great choice that a lot of coaches face. Do you want to stay in one, one spot? and dominate or do you want to go on and take a risk and bet on yourself and see how it goes and, and it's very possible that his protege ryan day will face a similar decision in the years to come and i don't know if we have talked about the fact that ryan day's mentor put in four years and left two years as an offensive coordinator four years as a head coach ryan day two years as an offensive coordinator at ohio state two years as a head coach so far. And then Chip Kelly went to the NFL. People love to talk. Will Ryan Day go to the NFL? I'm not saying he's Chip Kelly. He's not Chip Kelly. He's his own man. He and Chip Kelly are really tight. Maybe file that away in the back of our minds, not to freak anybody out at the end of the podcast, but, but they are really tight. I mean, like the same high school, same college. I mean, New Hampshire, they call it the New Hampshire mafia. Dan Mullins from New Hampshire. A couple other guys are from New Hampshire. I mean, there's not, there's not a lot of, a lot, a lot of football stuff going on up there. So Chip Kelly and Ryan Day, worth keeping in mind. All right, I liked it. Uh, let's. I, I think let's make a part of the retalkables, even though this one's going long. Let's make a part of it spitballing where we could go next. And we'll try to get the textures back involved. But Nathan, do you have any instinct right now on where you might like to head? You personally would prefer to head next with the rewatch. We've done one Urban. We've done one Trestle. Should we do a Cooper? Do we want to do like some of the great Penn State games that Ohio State's been involved in recently? Do we want to do a Ryan Day game? Do we like? Do we want to do a Woody game? Where Where do you think we might go, Nathan? I think there's a lot of ways to go. I mean, we we also could try to to sync them up with the, the opponents that they're playing, like we did this week. So I mean, that's an option too. I think we can just kind of keep it free week to week. But I'd like to revisit. I mean, I think all of those things can tell us. I mean, you can look back at this conversation and how many times we referenced things that are happening in Ohio State football right now. And I think no matter what era we can go to, it'll be somehow reflective and give us a new perspective on the team that we're covering or wish we were covering right now. They were supposed to play Buffalo next. Mm-hmm. And there is a game where Khalil Mack kicked Tyler Taylor Decker's butt all game the last time Ohio State played Buffalo. So we could just do the Khalil Mack game if we want to. We're, we're not actually going to do that. Hey, welcome back to Buckeye Retalkables. Let's talk about a game where Ohio State beat a Mack team, but Khalil Mack went crazy. Um, Steven, do you have an instinct of, of – is there one that's sitting in your head that you really want to get to? Not necessarily a game, but an idea. Maybe this could be the Ryan Day week if we just use that Nebraska. I think there is a we, – we have a question within our, our you know criteria of – is this a does this look like a national championship team? And I think there's a game every single season with Ohio State that you can start to form your your opinion of whether or not it's a yes or a no, and it kind of starts in that week. I think maybe we do the Nebraska game because I think that was the first time for all of us. I just remember us being there in Lincoln and going, "Okay, this team is for real." Now, obviously, Nebraska was fake, but Ohio State's actually really good on both sides of the ball, and maybe that's what we do with. Next week is we pick a game. It doesn't necessarily have to be that game, but pick a game where that was the week that for Ohio State, that was the first time they showed that they could be a national championship contender that specific year. All right, so we'll ponder. We'll ponder this and we'll come up with another one. We appreciate you guys hanging out with us here on Buckeye Retalkables. Make sure you're catching the regular Buckeye Talks. Again, get subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, This is the bonus Saturday pod. 
because we had the extra one Friday talking about Wyatt Davis opting out, talking about Ryan Day's statement. We will continue to monitor what may or may not happen, but we do think something's going to happen fairly soon uh, with the Big Ten decision on when they might play this year. So thanks for hanging out. For Steven, for Nathan, I'm Doug. And that was a Buckeye Retalkable.